Hi, this is Dave Olson. I'm the senior leader of Heartland Church located in Ankeny, Iowa. I hope the following message challenges, encourages, and ultimately changes you. Thanks for joining us. All right, let's get into the Word this morning. God is good. You know, I was thinking the other day, there's people all all over the country, all over the world, that have been touched in this house. And uh, I was, I, as I was praying the other morning, God just began to talk to me about the power of encounter, encounters with God, and how the lives of great men and women all down through history have hinged on encounters with him. That they walked in and encountered God and walked out different. And that's been true all down through history, whether it's Abram, whether it's Moses, uh, Ezekiel, Samuel, Uh, different ages, different seasons, different times in history, but the commonality was an encounter with God, and and lives, destinies hinge on encounters with God. And as I was just praying through that the other morning, uh, I got to thinking about Randy Toman. Uh, Randy came in here with his family. We were in the middle of an outpouring in 08, and they had heard about it, and they stumbled in here. And uh, Randy had been a leader in the denomination that he was a part of, a a denominational leader, a regional leader. He was also a pastor. But he'd gotten very discouraged, uh, ended up getting into alcoholism and resigning his position, moving back to the lower states. He was up in Alaska, moving back into the lower states and uh, was just a broken man and came in here. And he had these powerful encounters with God. Uh, one, I, I'll never forget the one testimony. He was sitting outside the nursery. The nursery was back here back then. And uh, as he, he heard a, a little baby crying as the mom gave him to someone, gave him to one of the nursery workers. And uh, God began to work in his heart. The next day he's sitting in his truck and the Lord's presence fills his truck and he feels this pressure coming around him. And he said, Lord, what are you doing? And the Lord said, I'm hugging the addiction out of you. And uh, the Lord took him back to when he was a little kid. His grandfather would hold him really tight when he would feel insecure and be crying. And in the, in the tight grasp of his grandfather, he, he didn't feel the need to, to cry anymore and the need for a bottle and just that insecurity. And the Spirit of God came upon him. Today, he's back in Alaska being used by God uh, with his son. And uh, they're part of a powerful church up there. Christopher's heading back there. He was up there last, uh, about a year and a half ago, and uh, some powerful testimonies came out of that place, and uh, so God is good. God is good. That was a shameless segue, by the way, into morning prayer. Tuesday, Thursday, we have prayer from 7 a.m. to 8 a.m. Wednesday, from 6 a.m. to 8 a.m., and Friday, we have prophetic intercessory worship, live worship. 7 a.m. to 8 a.m. If you can make it out, I want to encourage you to do that. And uh, there, is, there is a call on this house for prayer and uh, we, that we're just beginning to touch. We're just beginning to move into. And uh, there have been seasons of that in our history, but we're stepping into a fresh season that is not going to end. And so I want to encourage you to come out and the Lord's presence has just been so precious in the mornings. Uh, and thus, that is why we're talking about what we're talking about these last number of weeks. We're looking at, I don't know what to call it. It's a series on the Tabernacle of David, King David, the 
the priesthood of Melchizedek, all that, you know, just kind of, that's the target, the very vague target, somewhere in there. And uh, we're talking about that. Uh, last, uh, last week, Linda Moon began to talk about Scott Lee. And uh, Scott Lee had come through uh, the church a couple of times we had him in. Uh, there's some ministries in this house that were launched through a prophetic word that he gave uh, it was the, the, some pe- uh, Brenda Long and S- Brendan and Steve had come and talked to me the week previous about having a place for trafficked women, and uh, the Lord had spoken to them. And this is a heavy lift. I mean, they they had they had nothing to begin with, but a but a burden and a vision. And uh, I said, Hey, I think you ought to do it. The next week, Scott Lee came through. He was praying for people, and he just comes to Steve and Brendan. He stops. He said he starts talking about this house for trafficked women. He said, can I tell you a story? Starts talking about some friends that are helping trafficked women and uh, begins to prophesy over them the very thing that they're now doing. And it's, it's an amazing thing uh, what God did. But uh, Linda was talking about some other things Scott had prophesied. And I thought, I don't remember any of that. I'm thinking, was that really here? And uh, so I said, hey, how about you loan me the CD you bought from our church that I pastor? So I could be reminded of the prophetic words that were given over the church that I pastor so that hopefully I can steward those words in the church that I'm supposed to pastor. So I started listening to it Friday, uh, Friday afternoon, I, uh, late afternoon, I took my, my youngest son, my 15-year-old, the son of my old age, yes, I have a 15-year-old son, he's not my grandson, and uh, took him to, to Chick-fil-A to work, and I was listening to that, and I was just so gripped. Uh, I took off that night, just drove around for a while, and then pulled outside the prayer meeting here, and I just sat in my car for a half hour listening to more of that. I was so gripped by what Scott was saying, I was blown away. I'd forgotten the word he'd given us. Scott was in Mexico, and the Lord told him, I'm going to take you I'm going to send you to the house of the apostle of prayer, John Hyde. Anybody ever heard of John Hyde praying Hyde? So I believe his house was in India. It's a little bit of a long travel, but he ends up going to India on ministry. And, or it, might, it was either India or Pakistan. Anyway, he gets there, and his friends that are there to meet him said, the Lord spoke to us last night. We're supposed to take you to the house of John Hyde. Now, when John Hyde was in this particular country, he couldn't even speak the language. He shifted the nation through prayer. They say when John Hyde died, his heart had literally shifted position because of the hours he spent in prayer. He's known as the apostle of prayer. And the Lord told him, he said, I'm, when you see, he said, I'm going to show you in the spirit. There's going to be a green, a green cloth with white tassels that will float down. When you see it, grab it and bring it back to America. Now, I just lost some of you, didn't I? Well, you're going to have to get used to that at this church. But uh, anyway, so he goes. The Lord had also told him there would be two times four earthquakes while he was there. While he's on his knees in the, heart, in the house of John Hyde, an earthquake hits. He closes his eyes and he said, I saw the, the scarf fall. I grabbed it and wrapped it around myself. When I, told, when I, when I heard him tell that story to me privately... I, I forgot I had leaned over just before he preached that night and I said, hey, would you release that over Heartland? And so on the CD that I forgot about, he said, I asked, he said, your, I had a message, but your pastor, it's his fault, he asked me to release this. So when I asked the Lord, the Lord told me it's okay. It's because there's a call on this house for apostolic prayer. 
And so he released that over us. And I'm telling you, there's a call on this house for governmental intercession. That from this little cornfield in Iowa, that we shift affairs across the earth. And so I want to encourage you, come out for prayer. If you can find a place where, and, and hopefully in the future, we will. We, it's not hopefully, we will. Eventually, we'll launch some other places where you, that can uh, that, that, that will enable you to jump in on a spot and take your spot as a member of this house because the calls on the house are the calls on us as people. There, there are such a thing as individual calling and corporate callings. And when you connect with a group of people, there's a fuller calling that you step into. And that's why it's so essential that you find the church you're supposed to go to because you find your tribe and when you find your tribe, you'll step in that place and you'll hear them talking your language. They'll say things. And sometimes it's, it's not even the words they use. It's the concepts they're talking about. And it may even be the first time you hear that concept, but something in you is saying, oh my goodness, you put into words what I've been putting, what's been in my heart all this time and I didn't even know I wanted. But this is what I've been looking for. I'm home. And you meet your family that, you, that are new to you, but they're family. And there's this sense of this is where I was called. And so, and when you find that, peek your ears, listen. Because when there's corporate callings, when you join that corporate group, we're called to those things. And uh, God calls different churches to different things. That's why we need different churches and regions. There's no such thing as a one-stop Jesus shop. Different churches carry different things. And that's why you need to know what you're called to. And sometimes you discover what you're called to by going to a place, and it awakens within you. You don't even know, but you walk in, and it's like when, when they start talking, your baby jumps. <laughs> like, wow, that, there's a witness here. I'm, this is what I'm called to, okay? So you ever felt that? <laughs> it's really weird as a man, I'm telling you. So that's really a sign and a wonder. All right, let's get into the word this morning. I, uh, I woke up early this morning, and it seemed really early because of daylight savings time. Uh, poor Troy and Jennifer drove from Omaha in daylight savings time. God bless you. Lord, give them a special blessing this morning. But just, uh, just felt the tenderness of God. The Lord is bending his face towards us as a church. He's responding to our prayer. There's a tenderness, an invitation from God to enter into more. He's responding to our prayer. The wonderful thing is if you've not been able to make it out to prayer, it's okay. You're part of the family and you get in on it. Family carries one another's burdens. But I'm telling you, there's, the Lord is leaning towards us. And that song that we sang this morning, I want to be purified, is key in the process. I appreciate faith leading us in that song. My son, my youngest, asked me this morning, who's leading this morning? I said, faith. And I said, remember, without faith, it is impossible to please God.
but God is, God is leaning towards us. And so I'm just going to share my heart this morning. I'm going to try to hit some preaching points in the same thing we've been talking about. Let's just pray. Father, oh God. Lord, we want you. Lord, we don't want you as a means to an end. You are the end to which we point all our means. The best thing about you is you, Lord. Anything else is a mere fringe benefit for which we are grateful. But Lord, if we can't have you, we don't want nobody, baby. <laughs> if we can't have you, Lord, if we can't have you, we will not move from here. In Jesus' name. can't believe I said that, but that's what came in my heart, okay? I heard the music. I'm, I'm a child of the mid-60s, early 70s. That's when they had good music. Come on. Man, it's like revival. Wow. All right. Even my kids like 70s music. It's the wisdom of God on them. All right. Let me just share some. I'm just going to read through some things because I've wasted time and we have, we have not a lot of time this morning. I am convinced one of the primary metrics by which heaven judges leadership is the stewardship of God's presence. How do we respond to the presence of God? And when it's all said and done, that is going to be one of the primary things by which our lives are judged as leaders and as individuals. What do we do with the presence of God? Do you hunger for it? Are you willing to sacrifice to enter into it? Or do you relegate it to the shadows do you delegate it to the care of others? We can actually delegate the care of the presence to other people in our lives. The danger is that we become spectators, pew potatoes. Get it, taters, spectators? You can become pew potatoes. I know, it's, I'm here all week. It... Uh, <laughs> The danger is that we delegate the care for the presence, the hunger for the presence, that we ride in on the hunger of others. And there are times where that's fitting. There are times where we're wounded. There's times where we're going through heavy things and that, that we literally ride in on the hunger of others. But the fact is we, we need to have our own hunger. We, we, we have to have our own pursuit of God. There's that old phrase, God has no grandchildren. And that's true. He has children. We all have to have our own relationship. And it was this precise issue that made Saul a failure as king and David the great king. Jerusalem became known as the city of the great king. What an amazing title. It was known as the city of David, but it was also known as the city of the great king. And what made David a great king was his value for the presence of God. It was David's primary 
pursuit. And as we said last week, that is why, and I, I misquoted, I said Amos 8, it's Amos 9, 9, 11. God said, I will rebuild the tabernacle of David. It was a structure to house the presence. But it was more than a structure. It was a system of worship. Matter of fact, you can, this is why we got into the whole priesthood of Melchizedek, priesthood in the order of Melchizedek. Hebrews is very clear. Whenever there's a new priest, there is a change of the law. So there's a law, there's a priest, there's a structure of worship. And there's the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. The Old Covenant and the Eternal Covenant. The Eternal Covenant really is the Older Covenant. Because the priesthood of Melchizedek predated the Old Covenant. So the Eternal Priesthood, the priesthood of Melchizedek, was actually the one we enter into in the New Covenant. Because Jesus is a priest in the order of Melchizedek. So in a very real sense, the New Covenant is the oldest covenant. But we're not going to start referring to that around here like that because that would really confuse people. Say, let's open our oldest covenant and they'd look at you. But the, the eternal priesthood, there was a different structure. There was different laws. And there were, there, there, the old covenant had a priesthood, laws, and structure. It was a three-court system. It was very limited. There was a chosen people. But even predating that, when God called Abram the one that would launch, that become the people that would inherit the law of God, that, that's how Paul refers to them as the one who received the law. It was one of the, the admirations he had for his people. They were the ones to whom the law was given. And that is a, an admirable thing that God would entrust it to them. But Abram, from the beginning, what did God say? I will bless you. Why? So you can be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. So even from the beginning, God had his eye on more than just one nation. They were the bait to get all the other nations. And in the new covenant, it's not the priesthood of the few of the one tribal family, but it's the priesthood of all who are in. We're all kings and priests. And God is after the nations of the earth. And it's not limited to not only one tribal family, it's not limited to one nation, it's all the nations of the earth. And, in, and God will not be satisfied until he populates heaven with every tribe and tongue. And he hears his name praised through every language. And there's going to be a beautiful symphony in heaven where we're going to move back and forth in types of music. There's going to be some reggae. There's going to be some... Hey, I, I, I was over at Joshua's church the other night again, and we were singing. They were singing in Swahili, and I did it under my breath because when I go, no, 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 he say, they say, Pastor, only the women do that. I know, but I love it. It's just, I like that, you know? And uh, there's something beautiful. I, I love worshiping in Latin America. And half the time, I got no clue what I'm saying. But I've learned the songs enough I can sing them. And my accent's not too bad. And, and there's just something about entering into the, the other culture's music because I know there's a, there is a, a passionate hunger in King Jesus' heart to be praised in every tribe and tongue. It's a wonderful thing. That's all part of the Melchizedek priesthood. It expands things for the nations of the earth. It goes back to the original desire that God had when he called Abram, who became Abraham. What made David, i got to get back on track here. What made David uh, 
The great king was his pursuit of the presence of God. Now, a couple weeks ago, I talked about the presence as manifested in the ark. And there's an interesting history to this thing. And part of what made David great, uh, we, we talked about it last week, I believe it was Psalm 132, and it's really the backstory on David. You can't really understand who David was until you find his backstory in Psalm 132. It's the, un, uh, the unspoken things that we hear through Solomon, who heard it at David's knee, and then wrote it in the form of a psalm that we can now read and hear where God really hooked the heart of David. And in that Psalm 132, he says, we heard about it in Ephathra. We came upon it in the fields of Jar. He's talking about the the Ark of the Covenant, the presence of God, because the Ark ended up in the fields of Jar, Cariath Jerem. And what had happened is Shiloh was the resting place with the tabernacle made by Moses. And it was, Shiloh was the resting place. That's where we find it when Eli is ministering and Samuel's growing up uh, before the ark of the Lord. That beautiful chapters 1 and 2, how Samson comes on, I mean Samuel comes on the scene. And then this poetic language of this little boy in a linen ephod who's birthed in prayer and raised in the house of God and lays before the ark at night. A little boy. I just picture that. This little pipsqueak of a toddler in a linen ephod. Like he's like playing dress up as a priest because God has set him aside. You know, sometimes our kids are already living out their destiny through their, their games. My little brother, this is a side note, but when I remember going, in, going upstairs and opening the door, and when Christopher was like four, he, was, he wore one of our suit coats, was, which was too big for him. It was kind of dragging the floor, and he had a trash can because it had the lid that was pointed, and he had a book on it, and he had a suit coat on, and he was preaching. <laughs> little, little kid, just preaching. My mom said, our, our Catholic neighbor came over to her and said, I heard the best sermon I ever heard in my life this morning. It was your son David. He was on the back deck saying, don't lie, don't steal, don't, you know, something like that. And I was preaching it hard. Sometimes those little kids are grasping at their destiny. Little boys need to go to war. Okay, it's in our hearts. Anyway, that's another thing. That's another troop to her. But so Samuel is grow, he grows up in Shiloh, but what happens is Saul goes and retrieves the Ark of the Covenant for war because in Saul's time, the, the Ark was a side issue. And he, he, David, the first thing on his agenda when he took the throne was to get the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. But Saul was content that it would reside out at Shiloh until he needed it because in Saul's mind, the, the presence of God was a means to an end. In David's mind, it was his end. He was a man after God's heart and he was hungry for the presence. And I believe that the heart cry of David when he encountered the presence in the fields of Jar. David, he says that I heard about it in Ephathra. That's another word for Bethlehem. David was born in Bethlehem and had heard rumors that the Ark of the Covenant has been brought to Jar because what happened is Saul took it from Shiloh, took it into battle. The Philistines uh, captured it. For seven months, it tormented them. They all ended up with tumors or hemorrhoids, but depending on which translation. Suffice it to say, it was an uncomfortable situation. 
having God's presence and not being right with God. And I, I say that tongue in cheek, but I'm telling you, I, I need to say this, that it is a dangerous thing to live in intentional sin and come into the presence of God again and again and again. I'm not talking about those things you're struggling with and you come in here and say, God, help me, I want to overcome these things. I'm talking about you've hardened your heart and you say, I've decided this is the way I will live. I know God's a God of forgiveness. And you come in and you lift your hands and you enjoy the presence, but you know you're living contrary. It's a dangerous thing. Because the same sun that melts the butter hardens the clay. And the same presence that will minister to those who are surrendered will harden the heart of those who have resisted God in an area of their life. And so we need to respond to the Lord. And Saul was content and he, to, to have the, the presence of society. She takes the, the ark into battle. The Philistines end up with it. Finally, they send it back to Israel. And in the region, it was in the region, uh, let, let me see here. It was in the region of, they called the men, my computer, the, it was, they, they called the men of Cariath Jerem because at Beth Shemesh is the word I was looking for. They looked in the ark and depending on what translation, there's uh, some 50,000 men died. And so they called the men of Cariath Jerem and they said, we'll come and take it. And they housed it at a place called Abinadab's on the hill. <laughs> Abinadab's house. And it resided there for 20 years until David ascended the throne. And he said, I have got to get the presence of God front and center in my regime. And so that's what, that's what set David aside from Saul. That's what made God affectionate towards David, was David's affection towards God. There was this mutual exchange. So once the ark was removed from Gibeon due to the death of the 50,000, when the inhabitants sought to look inside it, it was never returned to the tabernacle of Shiloh. Instead, it was housed at Abinadab's, and it was essentially to protect the people from the presence of God. And it says that they, they grieved the presence. They grieved because of what had happened. But for 20 years, they were content until a leader came along and said, we've got to have this thing done. God is looking for people who will lead the charge towards the presence of God. Troy, that, that prison needs men that are hungry for the presence. Because when people find others that are hungry for the presence, it will attract people to them. And I'm telling you, the, the tabernacle of David was not merely a form of worship. It was actually a leadership incubator. It was a way in which mighty men of God were raised up. Because what David simply did is he learned to pursue God with his whole heart. And then he said, I'm going to make a system out of this thing so that I can invite others into what I have already broke into myself. That's what leadership is. God does something in you. And then he calls you to invite others into what you've broke into personally. So that he can raise up a people that break into that same thing so he can do something through that group of people. And the Lord's calling us 
to be those people that are hungry for his presence. For two decades, the ark of which it was said, I will meet with you there. I want you to understand this. For two decades, it was relegated to Abinadab's house, ignored, sidelined in the shadows. And this was the very ark that God said, I will meet with you there. Between the cherubim, the nation understood that I can meet with the Most High God if I can go to that ark. And they were satisfied for it to be relegated off in the shadows. What a grievous thing. What a tragedy. God is looking for those who will say, not on my watch. God is willing to meet with us as a people. The Lord has more for us. But what it demands of us is a level of hunger that says, I have to have the presence of God. I believe that when David encountered, when he heard the rumor as a young man, it's interesting that the ark arrived near David's home about the time he killed Goliath because encounters with his presence will change who you are and how you show up in life. And David had a fundamental shift in his life at that season and it's what brought him prominence. But that wasn't David's pursuit. David had encountered the Lord, and then when he heard this giant defaming his God, he said, I can't, I can't handle this. Someone's got to shut this guy up. And David stepped out on the battlefield, and things shifted. I believe that caused David to write Psalm 24, who can ascend and who can stand? He was saying, how can I get into the presence? How can I get access to this thing? I'm not a Levite. How can I move in? And he had the revelation of the Melchizedek priesthood. But we're about to read another spot where David, in his pursuit, cries the question again. For two decades, the ark of which it was said, I will meet with you there, was housed by Abinadab. In spite of this staggering promise, it was sidelined, kept in the shadows and neglected. The ark had become a forgotten means to an end until David. The test of whether God is a mere means to an end is when he disappoints or offends us by his mysterious behavior. We need to catch this. The test of whether your pursuit of God is simply a means to an end is how you handle disappointment. And even more than that, offense. There have been times where I have been offended by God. And I had a decision. Am I going to process this and come out the other side or am I going to remain in my offense? And the fact is, all of us have known people that have got offended with God and they float off into oblivion, never to darken the doors of a church again. And every one of us have been through hardship and some of us more than others. And I don't say that lightly. This, these, are, these are painful tests and sometimes all we can do with people that are going through them is those things is just sit down and cry with them. Weep with those who weep. But I'm telling you, in the journey of our pursuit 
of God's presence. There is not a man or woman alive that really has something in God that hasn't hit those times when there was pain in the pursuit. Because God is adjusting our perceptions. And sometimes there's massive disappointments. And there's things that I've had in my history, and I know you do too, that I look back and there's a cloud over it. I still don't understand. I cannot reconcile my experience with what I know from the Word. But I know this. The mystery is on my end. It's something I don't understand. It's not a contradiction in God. It's a contradiction from my perspective, not His. And we've got to get through those things. So when our pursuit stops there, we have proven it is not really his presence we were pursuing, but rather the results we could get from it. When the byproduct we inadvertently pursued no longer comes through, we abandon our pursuit. Turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 5. Or chapter 6, I'm sorry. Second Samuel chapter 6. David gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. So he's going to gather his, his entire fighting force. He's going to lead the presence of God into Jerusalem. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Bahel, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. Man, that's an amazing phrase. Which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. What a phrase. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which it was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ohio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ohio went before the ark. And so there... David was, was careful to get a new cart so that it wouldn't have been a defiled cart by carrying dead animals or, you know, refuse from animals. He, he, they built a brand new ark so that, or cart so that they could carry this ark on it. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and cantonets and cymbals. And so there, this is a praise service, a new ark. And David is so excited because since he was a little boy, he had been ruined by an encounter in that field. He came upon it in the fields of Cariath Jerem. And ever since, there's been this thing in his heart, who can ascend the hill of the Lord? He's hungry to have the presence of God. And now he is in a position of authority where he can bring the ark of God, the presence of God, front and center. It's not relegated as a side issue anymore. It, God is going to have the preeminent place he deserves. And we get to verse 6. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nakan, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. I can't imagine how devastating that was to David. That David, he had this ravenous hunger. I mean, he had lived... For years with this as his primary goal, the one goal of his life, he was a man after God's heart. And now when he finally has the ability to see this thing realized, he gathers all these people. 
He, he deputizes Ohio and Uzzah to be the ones that lead the ark. And they're dancing and worshiping the Lord. Can you imagine? It's in the midst of this extravagant praise. All of a sudden, Uzzah, out of the goodness of his heart, reaches up, grabs the ark so it doesn't tip, and he's struck down dead right there. And he's laying dead before the ark. And David is devastated. Listen to what it says, the very next verse. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And this place that is called Peruz Uzzah to this day, which means break out against Uzzah. And David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? And now David is asking the question that he'd asked before. How can I get into the presence of the Lord? How is it that I can approach the presence of God? In Psalm 24, he says, how can I go there? In this verse, he's saying, how can I get it to me? But it's the same desire. David had hunger. He had desire. But what David was lacking was the fear of the Lord that would grant him wisdom to steward the presence of God accurately. David didn't have the wisdom of God because he didn't have the fear of God. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And the irony is, as David is asking it, on the pain of his own heart, he's crying out, how can I ever get the ark of God to me? And there's anger in his heart. There's resentment. He's thinking, Lord, I don't understand. While he's asking that, unbeknownst to him, God is already answering his cry, and this was a necessary lesson. Because on the way to God's presence, there's always a threshing floor. And we sang it this morning. God, I want you to purify my heart. Man, that's, that's a, even as we began to sing it, I thought, well, this, this is in line with what I'm going to preach on this morning. But I was thinking, this is kind of a crazy song. But we need to be careful when we sing these songs. We need to sing these songs. But we need to be careful when we sing these songs. Because David was singing the song, but he wasn't being careful. And what David had was hunger without fear, without a reverence for the presence of God. And it caused him to handle the presence in a sloppy way. He didn't press in and look into the word and say, okay, what do I need to do to steward the presence of God? He was looking at the end, but he wasn't studying the proper means to do this thing. And even though it was noble that David created a new cart, it wasn't enough. Because if David would have gone into the word, he would have realized it has to be carried on the shoulders of sanctified men and women. In that age, it was sanctified men. The presence is not carried by ox carts and things made by men. It's carried by men. Because only men and women can carry the presence of God. We're called to be the bearers of his presence. And so we read on in this passage. David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can I bring the ark of God? 
the Lord come to me? How can I get the ark of the Lord to come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. This was a man who for years, well over a decade, had had his his heart fixed on this one thing. And now when he finally has the opportunity, he was now unwilling. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all of his household. You see, the irony is this, that the, this ark had been relegated to the, heart life, or the, the house of Abinadab because of its effect on the people of God 20 years earlier. David wanted to get it to him, and now it had cost the life of a friend. And so again, David relegates it to someone else's house. Someone else can care for the presence, can steward the presence. The price is too high. In verse 12, and it was told to King David, the Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. And something awakened in David's heart again. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. This is a short little story, but I guarantee you there was a lot of heart searching, a lot of dealings of God between the death of Uzzah and the news he received about Obed-Edom. That three-month span was a time where David was doing a lot of soul-searching. And what had happened is David began to pray and contemplate and think about this. And David came to the conclusion that in this situation, and and this is in no means all the time, but in this situation, the mystery and the offense was David's fault. Sometimes the mystery remains a mystery. And it's circumstances out out of our control. In David's case, David began to realize, I brought this on myself. My hunger was uninformed, and it cost me the life of a friend. I can't imagine the weight that David carried in this. Can you imagine? But David hears again of the blessing on Obed-Edom's house, and there's something in David that says, I've got to have it. Dangerous as it is, and there's a reason David would have thought. It's da- the, the, the history of this thing, the, the two times they've tried to move it, in the last 20 years, people died. But there's something in David said, I've got to find out how can I get the ark to me? And I guarantee you what David did is he gathered the scribes, he gathered the priests, he grabbed the scrolls, and he began to do a deep dive and find out how do I handle the presence. And David adjusted his heart. It was one thing to have hunger. It's another thing to have fear. For years, they lived in fear. David was the guy who showed up with hunger. They needed to come together. And David had a renewed hunger, informed by fear, which caused him to get into the word and become wise and to understand how to steward this thing. And he ushered the presence of God into Jerusalem. Said every few steps they would sacrifice an ox. It was a costly path, a bloody path. And he he brought the ark of God to Jerusalem. And it inaugurated a new era 
in Israel's history. One to which even today they affectionately look back as the high point of their history. The boundary lines of Israel exponentially increased. The wealth was unfathomable. And it was all inaugurated from when David got the ark to the city. And God wants to awaken our hearts. That this, there's, there's an awakening going on in many of our hearts, a greater desire for his presence. But I'm telling you, on the pathway to that place of visitation, of encounter, there is always a threshing floor. I can't read threshing floor without thinking of what John the Baptist, Baptist said of Jesus. The one coming after me, the one whose sandals I am unworthy to untie. What I do with water, he will do with the Holy Ghost and fire. And the winnowing fork is already in his hand and he will take you to the threshing floor. And he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. What it's talking about is a purification of our own hearts. And the initial stage of any move of God is the deep dealings of God. And often it's the process of crying out that God begins to deal with us. And things come up and you'll see some people step off the path. And they'll relegate, they'll delegate the stewardship and the hunger and the pursuit to others. Because it's too painful. But what God will do is he'll awaken our heart again and have us work through our pain. And there's something about hunger after you've been disappointed. Hunger after you've been hurt. And you're still hungry. That is purified hunger. It's hunger that God cannot deny. Talked about it last week when I... What I saw over Rick Arrowwood that, that night I prayed over him. And the hunger that he was crying out to God in the midst of his pain. God can't deny that. Dan and Merrill, I'll never forget the morning you guys came and knelt here in prayer. On your way to the hospital. And, and uh, I'm telling you, God can't deny that kind of hunger. And the, 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 what, how I've seen you steward your heart is amazing. And it, it stirs me to want more of that kind of posture in my heart. And I wouldn't wish those circumstances on anyone. But I'm telling you, God's going to give you vengeance on the enemy by rewarding you with his presence. He is. God can't deny that kind of pursuit when there is disappointment on the pathway to his presence. And people say, I'm, I'm going to go. I'm still going. Even David, the man after God's heart, took a pause in his pursuit because of pain. But something within him forced him back into the pursuit. And in the school of the Spirit, there is pain and there is disappointments. But I'm telling you, God, God will hook our heart again. And it is a required course in the Spirit. I talked about it a few months ago. And God just keeps pushing it on my heart. That disappointment is a required course in the school of the Spirit. That there is not a man or a woman worth their salt that hasn't experienced it and keep on pursuing God. I'm I want to release this word again. I'll, we'll just close with this. I'm going to look it up real quick. 
something the Lord spoke to me a few, a few uh, probably two months ago now. If I can find it very quickly. I make a lot of notes on my phone. I just saw a recipe for brisket. <laughs> and it just reminded me how hungry I am. Oh, it's way back here. Essentially what the Lord told me was disappointment is the credentials for this hour. People that have been through disappointment and continued on in their pursuit. And what we often look at as denial letters, rejection letters, we think, well, because the thing I was crying out for didn't happen. I can't find it, so I'll have to just... The gist of it was this, that we're in a very unique season. And what's going to qualify you to minister to others in this season is having gone through disappointment and rejection. And the very thing that we look at it as a rejection letter is as actually you flip it over. It's the credential. It's the, it's the qualification it's, it's heaven's endorsement that says you are one that I can entrust with influence because you've continued to pursue me. And in our pursuit of God, there are disappointments, but I'm telling you, God is bending his face towards us. And we're, we're coming into a season where God's gonna deal with some things. Just beat them to the punch. Begin to ask the Lord, God, what do you wanna deal with in my life? Lord, I just, I want to be, I want to be wholly yours. Lord, I want you to search my heart, God, whatever you want to put your finger on. And as we do that, I'm telling you, it's going to usher in the presence of God residing here like we've been wanting for well over a decade, what we've been crying out for. But the threshing floor is always on the way to his presence. And the threshing floor is where what is usable, the wheat is separated from that which is not usable, the chaff. And he sends unquenchable fire to burn up what he can't use in our lives. It is not a coincidence that the ark, the presence, shifted at the threshing floor. And that's where the judgment fell. And there's, there's things that the Lord's wanting to deal with in our hearts. Let's pray. I want to just, if you'd keep your head bowed, I want to read you something here. There was a pause in David's pursuit. He had to recalculate the cost. His hunger was uninformed and lacked fear. But fear will cause a pause. Your fear can either be the end of your hunger or the beginning of wisdom. You get to choose. Let me say it again. Your fear can either be the end of your hunger or the beginning of wisdom. It takes wisdom to secure the presence. That's why David cried out both, who can ascend and how can I bring it to me? Wisdom brings the answer to the cry of the hungry heart, but the beginning of that wisdom is fear. Rather than resigning himself to mere fear, David's hunger rose again, adding to it wisdom to steward the presence. Hunger plus fear equals wise stewardship.
Painful misunderstandings in your pursuit are the test of stewardship. And I just, I, I feel the need to share this with every head bowed. Listen, if you're living in sin, if you're living, there's, there's things that you're holding on to that you know are displeasing to the Lord. It's clear in his word. But you, you've decided, well, I'm just going to live with this and God forgives. You are playing with fire. God does forgive. God is merciful. But God is also a just God. And avoiding the judgment of God comes through self-judgment called repentance. When we judge ourselves and we agree with what God says in his word. And so if there's things in your life that you are resisting God on, I'm telling now is the time to repent. Get rid of those things or you will miss a move of God. There is a dangerous theology afoot in the United States of America that only sees one side of God's character, that only sees his grace, that only, it only talks about faith and love and not about fear and repentance. And that is the other side of the, the nature of God. Paul put it this way in the New Testament, in Romans chapter 11. Consider, therefore, the kindness and sternness of God. The word consider means to keep at the forefront of your thinking. Keep in mind, keep in the forefront of your thinking, the kindness and sternness of God. So that you live in the balance of the love of God and the fear of the Lord. So, Lord, we're asking, God, that you would do a work in us. I apologize this morning. I, I, I feel like I'm more jumping around. But I feel like there's one more thing we need to deal with. I want you to look at me. I want to pray for marriages this morning. Had someone reach out to me and they, they felt very strongly from the Lord. And, I, and I, it bore witness with my heart. I want to tell you a quick story. Uh, I, I, it's six minutes after. I'm just going to take two or three minutes more here. I was... It was, I don't know, it was probably a decade ago or so. It was sometime in the last 10 to 13 years. And uh, I was moving a bed at home and my, my hand slipped and a bolt went up under my wedding ring and it peeled the skin back of my wedding ring. And my hand just started bleeding really bad. And it hurt. <laughs> and I went, ow! And I looked at my hand and the Lord spoke to me and said, be careful, the enemy's coming for your marriage. And I was stunned. I thought, wow, I didn't expect that. I mean, it, it, you got my attention, Lord. Did, did you really need to, you know, do that? <laughs> and uh, so I said, okay, Lord. Yeah. And I, I kind of forgot about it, to be honest with you. I'm kind of thick-headed, I guess. So about a week and a half later, I'm at Walmart. And I'm standing there, and I said to one of my kids, hey, da 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 I went like this, and there was a, a shelf there. And there was a screw, a bolt, someone had screwed through a little sharp bolt that had gone below the, the threshold. And I went, and wouldn't you know, that bolt went right in that wound, punctured it, and there was just blood dripping from my finger. And I went, ow! And the Lord said, I told you the enemy's coming for your marriage. And then second time, I thought, Lord, I don't want to have to go through this again. 
But it, it, frankly, it shocked me. And it gave me an awareness to be very tender towards my wife and to be careful what was going on in the atmosphere and to listen to the Lord and be sensitive. I don't know about you men, but what happens to me in those seasons is there is this criticalness that comes in towards my wife. Rather than appreciating and focusing on what she does that I like, like washing my clothes, having food for me when I get home, all those wonderful things that she doesn't have to do. I depreciate her by getting critical of the little things in her life. And that's, that is a sign to me the enemy is stepping in. When I begin to be critical, and ladies, I don't think that's just a masculine thing. We can appreciate or depreciate our spouse. And so if you're married, I want you to stand, and I just want to pray over you right now. I want you to take the hand of your, your spouse. I want you to know my wife is not here this morning. It's not because we're in a fight, okay? <laughs> She's just not feeling well. By the grace of God, we're doing quite well. But I'm telling you, I'm speaking from experience because I can be a jerk left to myself. So Lord, I'm asking God right now. Lord, I ask that you would just release a sensitivity by your spirit. God, a, a sense that, Lord, we're very responsive to you. Jesus, you are the bridegroom. You are the best husband in the whole world. <laughs> Lord, I ask that you would make us sensitive to our spouse. Lord, let us do spiritual warfare by loving well. Let me say it again. Let us do spiritual warfare by loving well. Loving your spouse, appreciating them, occupying your mind, rehearsing the good things that they do, rehearsing why you were attracted to them in the first place, because sometimes you forget is an act of spiritual warfare that protects your family and this nation. Lord, I thank you. Lord, I'm asking God that you would release a blessing over marriages. Lord, help us to be tender. And Father, I ask that you would release over our marriages a competition on who can be the first to apologize. Lord, that we would be competing to be the first to apologize. Who can go low first? Who can apologize first? Who can exhibit the kingdom first? In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to help more people hear this message, you can get the word out by subscribing and sharing it on social media. If you'd like to support the ministries of Heartland Church, you can do so at heartlandchurchonline.com slash give.